My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors, and I want to welcome you to Bethel this morning. Um, if you're online with us, I am thrilled that you're with us, and um, you're, you're probably one of the, the smart ones this morning to, to gather with us online, but we're here, and I trust that the Lord will bridge that divide uh, between here and the living room so that you would feel uh, just as much a part of uh, what it is that when we've gathered this morning and, the, and that mystery that the Spirit does when we gather. Um, we are in this morning. Let me tell you, if you want to get your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And what we're doing is we're in the fourth week of, uh, in the final week of what we call, or maybe not final, maybe we have one more, I can't remember, but the blueprint of the church. And we're looking at, reminding ourselves, okay, what in the world is the church. What's this thing that we're doing when we come together as believers in Christ, that we say about one another that we're brothers and we're sisters, that, uh, that we belong together in a local church? What is this thing called the church, and how are we supposed to be the church, this 2,000-year-old um, entity, this body of Christ that he established how are we supposed to be that in the year 2021 in Tyler, Texas? Well, to remind you, these are some things we said about the church. We said this, that the church um, has been for 2,000 years the people of God, the body of Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's what we are. We are um, the Bible says the first fruits of the kingdom, and we are those first fruits in the midst of a world that's sinful and rebellious. We are a people who belong to God. The Bible says in Acts 20, we were purchased with the blood of Jesus, that we are God's possession, we are his treasure, we are the bride of his eternal son, and that we've been uh, given to be cared for by elders and leaders that God has appointed. And that's who we are in our mission. The reason that we are, the, why we are in the world, is that we would go into the world and proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the whole creation, that we'd call everybody to faith. And that we'd make disciples. And that we'd do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that we'd bear fruit of the kingdom and increase. That we'd increase in our knowledge of God. So that. And this is the purpose. That Jesus is worshipped and exalted to the glory of the Father. And that the saving power of God. That that would that would extend, that, the word, the, um, the amazement, the miracle, the power of, of, of God as Savior would extend to the ends of the earth. And so, what we said is, as we think about that, as we think, good night, here we are in Tyler, Texas, in this church called Bethel across these five campuses in this East Texas area. How how do we contextualize that? How do we take what the church always has been and is supposed to do 
And how do we do that in East Texas? And so we talked about this vision that Bethel has, and the vision is simply the application of who we are as the church in the place that we live. And we talked about growing communities, that we would, we, we would pursue multiplication and discipleship, that we talked about building leaders, that we'd be stewards of the influence that we have. And then this morning, I want to look at the third way that we talk about our vision statement, is that we would be a people who live generously. Sometimes we talk about it as joyfully one-anothering each other, and that we would live generously. Well, when I talk about or think about or read Scripture about what it means to live generously, um, an old song comes to my mind. In fact, it's a song that this September just in a few months, is going to be 45 years old. It came out in September of 1976, was written by a guy named Tom Schultz in his basement. It took him five years to write this song about a lost love. Loved a girl named Mary Ann. She's the one that got away. Let's see if you know what song I'm talking about. Here's how it starts. Turn on some music to start the day. Get lost in a familiar song. Close my eyes and slip away and dream of a girl I used to know. You know the chorus? More than a feeling. The band's Boston. Said it's a it's about the power that an old song can have in your life. And at the end of the day, what he wished for was more than just a feeling. See, I think this, if we were to take Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, and we were to put this passage to music, and in, in Paul's words to the, to the Corinthians, we would write a familiar song, our guitar riffs and all, that, that Paul's saying, look, this is about more than a feeling. What he really is after is, listen, that, that as the church, what it means to be the church, you can't talk about what it means to be the church and your part in the church unless you are growing spiritually in Christ. You were saved to become transformed like Christ. But Paul's going to argue that, that if there is not transformation in all the areas of your life, and in particularly a significant area, then, then you find yourself stunted in your growth in becoming like him. And that is, what do you do with the stuff you have? And not only what do you do with the stuff you have, how do you feel about what you do with the stuff you have? Well, we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, but it starts actually back in 8. Chapter 8 and chapter 9. This is Paul's appeal to this Corinthian church, this frustrating, aggravating, messy church. 
and he's appealing to them because what he's done is he's saying, look, you Corinthian church, you guys are the beneficiaries just like all the churches in Asia Minor and in Greece and in Macedonia. We're all the beneficiaries of what those early believers had done in Jerusalem. And right now, those believers in Jerusalem, they're going through an incredibly difficult time. They are suffering an incredible poverty. And so Paul has rallied the churches to say, hey, we want you to give to this Jerusalem church, this Jerusalem project. And he'd been talking about it. And so he's sending Titus, one of his companions. He begins it, though, at the beginning of eight, chapter 8, and he says, look, generous lives which is what he's talking about, generosity, the generous lives, you know, th that is an overflow of the grace of God. A, a person who has truly been captured by the grace of God, that overflows in their life, and it looks like generosity. And then he picks up right after that, and he says, look, and it's not a matter of, of the law. It's not something you command. It's not something you regulate. It's, it's not something that you check a box. It's actually, it's a matter of love. How you give, why you give, why you're generous, it's all a matter of the heart. And the opportunities we have to give, those opportunities are arranged by God. And some people have much to give, some people have little to give, but regardless, generosity has an impact on how we live. And then he gives us the contrast between two churches. They're the churches in Macedonia, specifically Philippi. And the Philippian church, I mean, they were, they had all these hardships and all these afflictions. It was not easy to be a Christian in Philippi, and most of them, I mean, they were very poor church. And yet Paul writes to this church that's fairly wealthy in Corinth and says, hey, those people, they gave with incredible joy. You wouldn't believe how much. They had an abundance of joy. And they, they gave with such joy. And he looks at the Corinthian church and says, that well, they have an abundance of joy in the midst of poverty and hardship. You guys, you have an abundance of financial means. And so, that is part of his appeal. And he sends this guy, Titus, because, you know, the church had never done giving before. Used to, this is how it works. And in Judaism, money was given to the temple. Taxes were paid to the temple. It wasn't a matter of giving necessarily from your heart. You you gave as part of the system that was set up. And Paul says, this is a whole new deal for us. The church is having to figure out how you support the church, how you do ministry, how ministry continues to go on in the local church. And so, he sends the financial guys to make sure everybody knows this is on the up and up. And he also sends them because this Corinthian church, they needed a plan. He wanted their willingness in the doing of it, to match their willingness in their desire. Listen to what Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, it is superfluous 
for me. To write to you about the ministry for the saints. This is for the, for the church in Jerusalem. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, that's Philippi, saying that Achaia, this is the Corinthian area, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. He's saying, look, I, I know when we first talked about it, you were excited about this. You were said, yeah, Paul, this is a great thing to do. You were, you were all ready. I was able to tell other churches, man, Corinth is in. They're excited about it. Their zeal stirred everybody else up. And he says, but I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the gift that you'd promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift not as an extraction. See what Paul's saying? When you first heard about this, you got all excited about it. There was a lot of zeal. You said, yeah, man, we're going to do this. Count us in, Paul. But a year has passed, and Paul's reminding him generosity is more than a feeling. The problem wasn't their desire to give. The problem was their actual parting with their money. And it makes me think here, I should probably stop and say, I'm not asking anything of you today. If you're visiting and you showed up today, your worst nightmare just happened. The guy's preaching a sermon on giving. But listen, I'm not going to ask anything of you today. I just want you to hear, when we talk about the church, and we talk about believers in the church growing into our likeness of Christ, we cannot talk about that without talking about this. So you can relax. I'm not going to ask you to write a check, put your car keys in the basket on the way out, none of that. I want you to leave. But I want you to hear it. And I want you to be open to the Spirit doing whatever He's going to do in you. See, the problem is, parting with their money, that was where the rubber met the road. They were afraid of what they were going to lose. That if they gave their money away or they devoted their time, they'd be losing something. Interesting. There's a guy that wrote um, for the Berkeley Review a few years ago. His name is J.D. Trout. And he's writing about this, um, the phenomenon of, of empathy as it intersects with charity. Here's what he said. Empathy is a sweet impulse, sure enough. 
Through it, people experience the suffering of others and are led to selfless, often breathtaking acts of charity. Our empathy motivates us to help uh, our more vulnerable fellow human beings, the hungry and the sick. The sick. And then he says, yet empathy will only get us so far. No matter how much you empathize with a need, ultimately your decision to give comes down to whether you feel you can make a donation without harming your own well-being. And how you feel? Well, you always feel that you don't have enough to give. What's important to one in need, however, is whether you actually do have enough to give, not whether you feel that you have enough to give. Those in need don't need a potential donor's empathy at all. They need the donor's actual generosity. This is a, this is a secular commentary on just charity in the world, and yet it's the same thing Paul's saying. Jerusalem doesn't need your empathy. They don't need your zeal about this. What they need is they need your generosity, and then he's going to make the point, but you need your generosity. As much as they need that generosity, you need the generosity. Here's what Paul knows. Emotion does not sustain our intentions. He says, look, it's superfluous. It's, it's, it is what you need. It's not another explanation. It's not more inspiration about the ministry for the saints. Well, what appeals to the emotions, that's good. But it doesn't need to or it shouldn't need to be continually conjured up. What, what makes, um, you, you, you know, your emotions... Take what emotionally moves you and then work that out reasonably. Reason yourself to act. Paul doesn't want an emotional decision that continually requires the stirring up of emotions. That would be redundant. Paul knows emotions do not sustain action. Emotion will never bring a thing to completion. We just watched the Olympics. And I'll tell you, one of the things every single one of those athletes has in common is they all had an emotion. They all imagined they, uh, winning a medal. They all had the zeal in the beginning, but it was not emotion that sustained them during training. They had a plan of action. They had a strategy. Paul's also saying there's a difference between readiness and being ready. Look at verse 2. For, for I know your readiness, he says, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal stirred most of them up. When Paul speaks of their Readiness. The word means it's this eagerness to engage. 
Their interest has been ignited. Their emotions were stirred. They made their pledge to Paul. But then you look in verse 2 and verse 3, in the middle of verse 4, you see another word, and it's ready. You see readiness, and then you see ready. That's a whole different Greek word. Saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. Verse 3, that you may not prove empty uh, in this matter so that you may be ready. In verse 4, if they find you not ready. The first word is the willingness. The second word speaks of the action, being prepared. In verse 4, Paul speaks of their confidence, their assurance. In verse 5, he speaks of a promise they made. And the Corinthians, they were in danger of being all talk and no action, caught up in the moment, but the moment was gone. The desire was there. But now the feeling had faded. In the first letter he wrote to him, or the first letter we have, actually probably the second letter he wrote, 1 Corinthians 16, he gives them a strategy. He says this, now concerning the collection for the saints, this is 1 Corinthians 16, 1, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Here's the strategy. On the first day of the week, each of you should um, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those, um, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they accompany me. Here's what he says, look, look. Do it the first day of the week. Be intentional. Have some discipline. Do it regularly. It might say there's four kinds of generosity that play itself out in the church. One is there's the occasional generosity. And there's a lot of different reasons for occasional generosity. Sometimes it's guilt. Like sometimes you show up on the day, the, the pastor preaches a sermon, and then you feel guilty and you write a check. That's like occasional generosity. But the truth is, there's very little benefit with regard to spiritual growth. Most of that occasional generosity is usually self-focused. And you won't do it when you no longer feel it. There's a second one. It's called, we might call it sporadic generosity. That's the way we talk about it around here. It's where you have a surplus... And it meets with a need or an emotion. And sporadic generosity happens when you have both a surplus and an emotion. But how it plays out is that without surplus, emotion just leads you to, man, I sure wish I could, but I just can't right now. It can come with, on the one hand, the satisfaction of being part of something, a solution. On the other hand, it can be a disappointment because you're not able to participate because there's no real plan. It's emotion-dependent, and it really produces very little spiritual growth. This also is generally self-focused. Now, there's two more. One of them is systematic generosity. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 16. 
it's decided, it's, it's disciplined, it's occasionally, it's sacrificial, but it's, it's not dependent upon feeling or emotion. In fact, often it's despite feeling or emotion. It involves some denying of self. The last one, you see this appear in Scripture, is sacrificial generosity. It's where emotion, it meets discipline. And it's no longer giving out of surplus. It's, it's beyond what was planned, but still in the realm of what you've prepared. It's God-directed. It's not emotion-driven. It's God-dependent. This is the this is the kind of giving, he says, those in Macedonia, those in Philippi were doing. Interestingly enough, joy, joy is attached to systematic generosity and sacrificial generosity. You know, the believers, they would have felt this. You know, for, for believers that were slaves, and many of the believers in this Greece and Macedonia area were, they would have given out of their savings, about as many as the third of the church was slave, and it was, it was savings that they were saving towards their freedom. And for them to give… What it meant is they would be prolonging their slavery. They would be putting off freedom to sacrificially give. Well, here's some observations. We'll be done. One, spiritual growth. Your spiritual growth. It, it needs fuel other than emotion. It needs more than emotion. See, I, I think often believers can mistake emotion for spiritual growth. But discipleship by emotion, that's not spiritual growth. It's dependent upon emotions being stirred. It's dependent upon feelings. But that's not growth. Paul's ministry had greater substance than emotion could provide. So, Paul was a passionate man. He was certainly as emotional as he was theological, yet Paul's ministry, his spiritual life, wasn't a course. It wasn't a, a path. He wasn't taking this path of chasing emotional highs and goosebump moments. Paul knew deep moments of sorrow and suffering and persecution. And he also knew great disappointment. Paul didn't give up on the Corinthians despite they, the fact that really all the evidences they had given up on him. It would have been much easier for him to write them off. Too much trouble, too much time, too little results. 
but he cared for them deeply. He wanted more for them. He endured unbearable hardship because of them. He wanted them to grow in the grace of God, and he was willing to pour himself out. He said, I made myself a fool for you if it meant you would love Jesus more. There's a the generosity of his life. That's what we mean when we talk about living generously. That's what we mean. And the other is this Jerusalem project. Paul cared a great deal about caring for those whom he felt indebted to the gospel for. And he cared a great deal about the church being unified, the church supporting one another. And Paul knew the reality of verse 5. He said, so I thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and to arrange in advance for the gift that you'd promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an extraction. The, the act of giving is itself part of the gift. G generosity means freely and willfully and joyfully giving your life, giving your things, giving what's yours, and then trusting God with what He will do. See, I think we need a bigger picture, a better dream for the stuff that we have. Let me say it this way. Our money is only as valuable as what we choose to spend it on. Generous people, generous people have a bigger picture, a bigger dream for their resources, something bigger than themselves what one author said. He said, generous people find meaning outside of their possessions. It's the American way to wrap up self-worth in net worth, as if a person's true value could ever be tallied on a balance sheet. Generous people find their value in helping others and quickly realize that their bank statements say nothing about their true value. We need a bigger picture. We also need to see that we have more resources to give than just money, more than just our financial resources, our time, our experience, our lessons learned. That we give that away, that we would think beyond ourselves into those around us, that we should embrace the reality that life is short. And those who embrace that live in light of it. Because we remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, that, that we have such a short time to walk in the good works that God prepared for us beforehand. Say two more things about generous people. Generous people are content to live 
with less. You know, you know, living generously, having a whole life generosity, it requires a level of contentment. The, the reality is that when we give away our resources, we give away our money, we give away our time, it means we have less for ourselves. And contentment, that forms this foundation of which generosity can live. I mean, what if contentment is actually found in the exact opposite place that we've been looking for it? What if contentment is not found in what we accumulate, but contentment is actually found in what it is that we give? The joy we desire, the joy that Paul had, the joy that the Philippian church had and all the Macedonian believers, that joy is not found in the pursuit of our own comfort. Listen to Hebrews 12. Let us run the race with endurance that's set before us and, and look to Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy we desire is not found in the pursuit of our own comfort. Well, not only is generosity more than a feeling, the, the gospel is actually more than a feeling. True generosity, it, it finds its source in God's generosity. Paul is not asking these believers to do anything that is other than an overflow of the grace that they have received from God. God planned the generosity, this grace, and He poured it out through Jesus. And for 33 years, Jesus lived His life with the cross in view. In fact, in chapter 8, just before all this, Paul had just written, he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, for uh, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. So that by his poverty, you could become rich. This is the incarnation. This is ultimately the cross. This is how God's generosity is poured out. And then what Paul says at the very end of chapter 9, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It's the only time, it's the first time, that Greek word that translated inexpressible, it's the first time that word appears anywhere in the Greek language. But Paul couldn't find any word to express this gift, this inexpressible gift, this undefinable gift. And so he made a word up. He's saying this is a gift and it's so great it can't even be 
described. God is generous. He's the ultimate giver, and he came to restore us to the image of God, transforming us into the likeness of his Son. That the ultimate giver is making us like him. I'll end with this quote. Jesus, the God-man, had infinite wealth. But if he'd held on to it, we would have died in our spiritual poverty. That was the choice. If he stayed rich, we would die poor. If he died poor, we would become rich. Our sins would be forgiven. We would be admitted into the family of God. Paul was not giving the church a mere ethical precept, exhorting them to stop loving money so much and become generous. Instead, what he was doing is he was giving them the gospel all over again. Jesus is the ultimate gift. Jesus is the ultimate treasure. And here is why he is so ultimate, because every other treasure in this life you have to purchase. And Jesus is the only treasure that has purchased you. Growing communities, building leaders, living generously. This is how we want to be what the church has always been. In this time and in this place. Growing in the likeness of the one whose body we are. Jesus. If you would, would you pray with me? If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, you just said, I don't know that I've, that Jesus is my Savior. Do you know about him? Maybe you've heard about the cross, you've heard about what Christmas means and what Easter means, but, but for you, You have not been the recipient of the almighty God's generosity in sending his son to take onto himself all that you are. All of your sin and all of your shame and all your rebellion And he'd take it to himself and he would die with it in your place. He'd die the death you deserve. So that you could become all that he is. And that believing him for that, trusting God for the gift of his son, the Bible says that cleanses you It makes you whole, and it makes you right with him. Father, I pray you'd you'd do that this morning. In our hearts and in our minds, would you draw us to your son, Jesus. It is in his name we pray, the only way we can pray. And we do that by the power of your spirit.